welcome everyone to the Change Starts Here podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Odom. And on today's episode, we have Dan Dominich, who is uh, the executive director for a number of years, uh, the Superintendent Association in the United States, and then uh, has been a superintendent in his career. Uh, the conversation, we're gonna, we're gonna dive into a new plan that they've, they've come out with called Learning 2025. Um, I think it'll be incredibly intriguing for all educators to see where the future of education is going. I know that they got thought leaders, educators, as well as educational thought leaders from across the entire country to put this plan together. Um, so I'm excited to learn more about it. So stay with us. If you're not a subscriber already, please hit the subscribe button. We appreciate um, your support. And so please, please, please continue to subscribe and listen to us. Thanks so much. Dan, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you making time for us. My pleasure. Great to be with you. So the question we start with every guest is, who are you and what do you love about what you do? So my name is Dan Dominich, and uh, I'm the executive director for AASA, uh, the School Superintendents Association. We represent uh, all of the uh, superintendents in uh, America, actually, and other, also uh, many from Canada and internationally. Uh, the superintendents of all the American international schools are uh, our members as well. Uh, our organization is probably the oldest K-12 uh, organization in America. We were founded in 1865. Uh, that was the year that the Civil War ended and Abraham Lincoln was shot. So we've been around for 166 years now. Uh, and uh, we were founded by seven superintendents who met in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And it was interesting because uh, the reason those superintendents met is because the war had come to an end and the superintendents were concerned about how our public school system was going to deal with the black students that were now going to be coming into the system as a result of the end of the Civil War. So equity was really the basis for our foundation and equity is, is still our mission. Uh, and it's somewhat interesting, uh, perhaps sad, that here we are 166 years later, uh, and that's still a goal uh, to bring equity uh, to our, our schools. But uh, uh, it's uh, this year, this past year has been difficult uh, to say the least, because we, of course, we've had the pandemic, we've had a great deal of uh, civil unrest. And of course, right now our school districts and our superintendents uh, who we work with uh, have had an incredible stressing year. Uh, I have to tell you that the turnover this year has been very high. A lot of our folks, great leaders, uh, have really quit. They've resigned, not because they were eligible to retire, but because the stress of the job was just too much for them. Uh, most superintendents are used to that. I was a superintendent for 27 years myself, so I know uh, the stress the job brings. Uh, but it's one thing, you know, we, we're, we're trained to deal personally with the stress. It's another thing when it begins to affect the family. And so for a lot of folks, when their families were being affected because they were being threatened, they were being abused, uh, that's when they said, this is, this is too much. A perfect example of that is that we, a gentleman who was a finalist, one of four uh, finalists for National Superintendent of the Year just last year, exceptional educational leader in June, just said, I quit, uh, and he's now working for a trucking company. That's, that's, a, that's a major change and a major loss for education. So it's been tough. 
Yeah, I, I have a, I mean, we, we talked a little bit before we got on about uh, my past and I've been fortunate enough to be really close friends with superintendents from large urban districts to small rural districts, you know, and they have different politics as you can imagine that uh, impact them. But the one thing that I feel like I've heard this year from each one of them, that's rare that I hear the same thing from each of them, is every day they say they make the best worst decision that they've made in their career. Mm -hmm. Meaning like they've taken all the information, are doing their best to love and serve their communities, but somewhere they're upsetting one person or one group on either side every day that feels like the worst decision. Is that something that you've seen for your folks? Oh, absolutely. It's an Owen situation. Uh, it started with the uh, pandemic, of course. And uh, if they shut down the schools because of the pandemic, <clears throat> there were parents who objected to that. <clears throat> Excuse me, primarily because these were working parents who, who had a job and wanted to go to work. Uh, if they opened the schools, then you had the other side. Then you had the parents saying, how dare you put my child at risk? How dare you require that my child attend school when uh, I'm afraid that they're going to get infected and they're going to get sick? So both you know, the sides, opening or closing, it was no win situation. And most recently, uh, we're seeing the same situation play out in terms of uh, vaccination. Uh, even though there's a vaccination available for children 12 and older, which would be a tremendous uh, lift in terms of uh, mitigating the spread of the disease, there are many parents who don't want their children vaccinated and refuse to have their children vaccinated. Then you have the issue of masks, wearing masks or not wearing masks. That's the second uh, most uh, important mitigating factor, wearing masks. Uh, particularly when you have half of the student population or elementary age youngsters who are not eligible for the vaccine. So uh, you have the parents uh, abuse the superintendent if you uh, mandate the wearing of masks. And then if you don't, the parents say the same thing. Well, then I'm going to send my child to school. And most recently, uh, we've had the racial the blowback uh, under this critical race theory uh, agenda. Uh, which is interesting because I can tell you I've been in this business close to 50 years and I didn't know what critical race theory was until it came out recently. I don't know of any school district that ever had critical race theory as part of its curriculum, but it's a blowback, a pushback to the whole issue of equity, which started really last summer uh, with the, uh, uh, the violence that was taking place uh, as uh, police were shooting and killing. Uh, black Americans, and, and that uh, created an awareness on the part of superintendents that uh, more needed to be done in terms of equ equity and in terms of uh, dealing uh, students uh, with students that are being marginalized by the system. And now the blowback to that is this notion that uh, is put out as critical race theory, and we have individuals that come to board me meetings and agitate uh, against it. Uh, we have uh, moves to remove uh, members of the Board of Education for any number of reasons. We have people running on the board because they're either against CRT or pro-CRT or against or for masks or vaccinate. It is absolutely crazy out there. So I know and I would say the, it's the, the, the bipolar nature seems interesting. So my parents uh, grew up uh, working in politics and I would say one is more middle right and the other one is more middle left. And so uh, my whole childhood was based on just trying to figure out who the people are. And if people are really upset, whether on the right or left, 
just listening to them and trying to understand where their hurt is and their passion is and trying to assume the best. How, how do you guys coach your superintendents or offer support to help them navigate the unpredictability or even the bipolar nature of the politics they're experiencing right now? Well, absolutely. Yeah, we do. We do quite a bit of it. We have very active uh, uh, membership right now that participate significantly in the programs that we offer. Uh, we have about 36 different programs and uh, we about 2,200 superintendents participate in these programs. And uh, it's exactly to, to provide them uh, with the kind of training and the kind of leadership that they need in times like this. So, for example, if we take the, the pandemic issue, uh, our recommendation uh, is primarily that first and foremost, you do what you need to do to promote and ensure the safety of the students and staff. And in order to do that, we rely on, on the scientists. We rely on the experts. We're, uh, the superintendents are not medical personnel. They're not trained as doctors. They're not trained as health experts. So we rely on the experts. We rely on the CDC recommendations. Clearly, uh, the CDC has had problems this year. Uh, we, we've had issues with them. We work closely with them. Uh, for years, we, we've had a cooperative relationship with the CDC uh, that has worked very well. We respect them and, and we respect what their recommendations. But this year, there was a problem, you know, with the first administration. There were things that they wanted to say that they weren't allowed to. With this current administration, the missteps, they say one thing one, thing one day and then they change it the next day. But by and large, their recommendations are what we commend that superintendents follow in terms of the vaccination, in terms of wearing masks, in terms of the spacing in schools and all of these other factors. So the problem is that when superintendents attempt to follow these recommendations from the CDC and even from their local uh, health officials, uh, that's where you run into the politics uh, or that's where you run into the differences of opinion. So clearly uh, the number one uh, most critical factor is vaccinating the students. Those students that are 12 years and older that are eligible to get them vaccinated. And many schools around the country have uh, implemented vaccination clinics in the school to facilitate that process. But here is where they face the backlash uh, from parents who are totally against doing this or uh, politicians uh, at the governor level or down uh, that uh, negate that uh, as a requirement. And of course, the same thing with masks. Uh, if, if you can't uh, have a vaccine for the younger students, uh, then the best thing to do is to ensure that they're all wearing masks. Uh, and here again, uh, they run into a situation where they have a community where the parents will be out in force protesting. You know, they're right. You can't, you can't force my child to, to wear a mask. All of those uh, issues are probably responsible for where we see ourselves today. Now, today, uh, we're seeing uh, that uh, the country as a whole, uh, when we thought we had this under control last July, we don't. Now it's totally out of control. And where our expectations were that this school year was going to be somewhat of a return to normal, you know, if normal will ever be the case, uh, it's not. And we've already seen about a third of our school districts around America who have opened for schools already, are already closing schools, already are having a high number of students uh, that have to be quarantined because they're infected. 
So we're seeing the problem developing all over again, and we wonder uh, if this coming year is going to be any different. If we're not going to see a return to remote learning, if we're going to see a return to hybrid instruction and all of these issues, simply because there's not a willingness on the part of people uh, to do what uh, the scientists tell us is the solution to correct the problem. How do you balance, I mean, again, back to my earlier example, my own personal life is having a friend who's superintendent in a small rural area uh, in a conservative state, and then having a friend who's a uh, urban superintendent in a uh, more liberal state. And again, I'm just trying to keep political terms. I usually don't talk politics on here. And so I'm just trying to keep it as, mm-hmm. as in the middle as possible. But right. uh, how, how do you guys in association help balance uh, coaching for each of them? Because uh, yeah, well, the, 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 the attempt again, and uh, I use the pandemic as an example, is that the recommendation is that they follow what they feel is the best. Now, if that's not going to work, uh, you know, there's little that you can do. Uh, other than the fact to say, well, you know, we're, we're not being allowed to do what's recommended is the best thing. And, and then look what the result of that is. The result of that is now, now that we have to shut schools down. The result is that your children can't be in school in person. The result is that your children are getting sick. They're being hospitalized, staff members as well. A non-pandemic issue that's also a major problem today is this whole critical race theory issue. Uh, that's also very prevalent in many communities. Uh, and, and here again, uh, our counseling, our superintendents is, first of all, you know, none of these districts, I'm not aware of a single district in America that knows what critical race theory is or pushes it. The idea here is, is to provide all of our youngsters with the equal opportunity for a quality education. And you pursue that. Uh, that, that has to be, you have to provide all of the students with the same opportunity. You can't allow some students to be marginalized because they're a student of color or because they're immigrant or because they don't speak the language. All of those students need, and, and superintendents are trying and are willing to do that and continue do, doing that without getting into a discussion uh, in, of white supremacy or racism or any of these issues. You want to do the best for every child, regardless of whether they're white, black, brown, yellow, it doesn't matter whether they're poor or rich, we want to do the same. So you want to pursue that and not try to get into uh, uh, discussions that are are really uh, not going to, as you say, solve the issue. Everybody's going to have different points of view, but if we're all in favor of taking care of our children's needs, absolutely. From the point of view of history, uh, you can't change history. You can't negate what has happened. You can't, uh, you know, say, well, that's not, you know, that's not a fact. These are facts. And, and history is part of the education that youngsters go through. So you, you try to make sure that they walk the fine line, that they allow all of the voices to be heard. But then in the final analysis, whether it's in terms of the health and safety or the education of children, that what you're doing is that you're trying to do what's best for the child. You're trying to provide the child with the best education that they're entitled to. You're trying to keep the children as safe as they can be given the circumstances. Even so, even doing that, uh, that has not stopped uh, uh, many superintendents uh, this year uh, from being fired, from being removed, or simply for you know, quitting uh, because the pressure is too much. So it's, it's, it's a difficult challenge 
Um, and unfortunately, it's going to keep going. Back to the best, worst decision you've ever made, right? So every day is a best, worst decision. And so what are you guys doing to help support your new great leaders uh, to fight burnout? And then I'm curious to go to that next level. One of my one of my favorite organizations, I went to college in Dallas, Texas, and one of my favorite organizations to study in college and beyond was Southwest Airlines. And it was really about how they treated their people, right? It wasn't about the customer's always right. It's like our people are always right. And so when I got a chance to, to lead some schools, my heart and passion was take care of the staff to make sure mm -hmm. that they're loved and served well and can sustain, and that will spread like wildfire to the students. What are you doing for that first line for the soups? And then how are you helping them push that down uh, to their district staff who are in the same place, I'm sure, and then all the way down to the teachers? Well, it, that's, a, that's a great point. And uh, that's exactly right. And what we've done this year is that we are, we have developed a, and, and we are bringing superintendents together uh, to deal with, exactly with the stress of the job, to deal exactly with uh, what they need to do and, and know in, in terms of, of making their life easier. What we found, by the way, is that uh, what works best with our superintendents is that they love the opportunity to come together in groups where it's just them. It's just superintendents. There's nobody else there. There are no staff. There are no board members. There are no parents. It's just the superintendents. And allow them at that point to share their stories to share the stress that they're facing, and 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 that sharing, and then they talk about, and this is what I'm doing, you know, to help me deal with it, and that kind of sharing is the best. Uh, we find that very effective. We bring groups of superintendents together uh, for a period of an hour, uh, and we facilitate a discussion where they get to share, they get to learn from one another, and they want to repeat it. They want to keep doing. It. It's, it's, it's a, I guess it's a subtle form of therapy. We don't call it that, but it, it, it works great. They love it. They love to do that. It's kind of like being a principal or, you know, a soup or just a leader. It's, it's lonely because, you know, your whole job is there. Yeah. There's no one at your level. So it's tough to be completely vulnerable to talk about your insecurities or the failings that you may have had that you know you had, you want to fix. Uh, so I, I do think you're right. The, the power of that community is probably one of the best things that you can do for your, your superintendents. Exactly, it's a lonely job. Uh, there's only one superintendent in every community. Yep. Uh, and uh, so the opportunity to get together with other individuals who are facing the same problem is great. Now that in terms then translates to their staff, as you were saying, okay. and many of our superintendents are doing that. They recognize that that stress level is also there with their uh, teachers. And many of them have developed and implemented programs in their schools to deal with the teacher's stress. And the same thing with teachers, the teacher to teacher, to be able to get together uh, and, and, and to share that. And then of course, the, the, the students. And what we're seeing this year that uh, I think is, is a step in the right direction, part of, of that commission report and that Learning 2025 uh, initiative that we've developed at AASA uh, is to focus on the social emotional needs of the students. Uh, you know, for a long time, uh, you, the number one priority in education has been academic. <clears throat> we're here to teach reading, writing, and arithmetic and to make sure that our kids success. What we're seeing now is a step back from that. Not to say that the academic is not important, but that more important than the academic is the social and emotional well-being of our students. Uh, we're seeing that students that are, uh, are having emotional uh, issues do not perform well in school. 
that it doesn't matter what you do. Uh, you could put them in the best class with the best teacher and they're not gonna learn because their ability to learn is being blocked by emotional issues that they have. So uh, a lot of our superintendents are, I heard one of them uh, in a video that they did welcoming the teachers back to school saying, the first thing I want you to do when the kids come into the class is not to say, open your book to page 45. The first thing I want you to do is to say, how is your summer? How are you feeling? How are you doing? How is your family? And engage the group in that kind of a conversation before you ever get into the teaching uh, uh, academic mode. That's important. That's an important step because again, understand that if you're not dealing with the reality that these children have faced with the problems that they have faced and give them the opportunity uh, to discuss these things and to ask for help if, if they need that help, learning is not gonna take place. And learning is key right now because no doubt that there's been a significant loss of learning as a result of this pandemic. Consider the fact that this is the third school year that this pandemic is affecting, third school year. Uh, that's a long time. So there's a lot of catching up to be done uh, and you're not gonna do it very effectively if you don't deal with the social and emotional needs of the children. So yes, it cascades down and up, cool. you know, throughout the entire system. Uh, I, I, again, I try to keep a, a wide variety of friends. And so I can always get in debates. So my, my dad, who loves his Fox News, probably thinks I'm as liberal as one could be. My mom, who may be on the other side, probably thinks I'm more like Rush Limbaugh, which is not the case. I just like the best debates. And so mm -hmm. when I hear you talk about social emotional learning, it speaks to my heart because when I taught in inner city St. Louis, I always felt like if they don't, you know, they don't know I love them and care about them, we're not going to go very far, right? So mm -hmm. we've got to figure that out. But right. that was in the height of no child left behind. So we had to get results. Mm -hmm. um, what do you say? So there's a couple of thoughts I want to go on this. What do you say to the uh, parents who are nervous? And they genuinely so I appreciate their nervousness about social emotional learning because they think, well, that's my job to, to equip my kids with that what I, it makes me nervous that the school is going to do that. How, how do you uh, have a good conversation with them about feeling comfortable about this? Because uh, the, the, the point is to uh, indicate to them that we care about their children. We care about the, the whole child, uh, not just the, the academic factor. That's important and that's key. But there's enough science and enough research available uh, to demonstrate that uh, children will not learn that's been part of the problem with the achievement gap that we have today and the difference between performance that, uh, you know, we, we, we continue, the strategy continues to be to, to just feed, you know, funnel all this information into the brain of these kids, uh, hoping that they're going to learn it. It hasn't worked. It doesn't work. And it won't work because those children are not ready to learn. And it's not just, by the way, social emotional. Children have come to school hungry. <laughs> they, because they haven't had breakfast at home and they haven't had dinner at home and they're starving. They're not going to learn. So what we've seen this year uh, is that school districts are feeding all of their kids. I mean, this is great uh, that the uh, federal uh, government has supported this uh, and we push as an organization hard to do this. But now through this entire school year, all children are going to be eligible uh, for food in the school. Many of us uh, are offering not just lunch, they're offering breakfast as well. Uh, and, and because they recognize that these kids, if they're coming to school hungry, they're not going to learn. 
So the, the, the research today uh, is very definitive on what influences the ability to learn. And clearly, uh, all of these other factors uh, are involved. And if you don't take care of their emotional need, the child that comes to school homeless, the child that comes to school because he's being abused at home, the child that comes to school because there's poverty. And, and look at this past year. There were 14 million children this year that during the entire year received no instruction whatsoever because they didn't have a laptop. And if they, and if they did, it wouldn't have worked because they didn't have internet access at home. So we've got a lot of children, 14 million of children who missed out an entire school year. Those kids coming back to school as we try to bring them back, there's a lot of catching up to be due. And there are a lot of issues that have to be resolved with these kids before we get to the point of learning the academics. So let's, let's talk about uh, learning 2025. Can you tell me what was the genesis of it and kind of how you formed it before we dive into what it is? Sure, it, it, it was a realization that here we are, 2022, uh, we're well into uh, the 21st century. Uh, and we have an educational system that still functions as a not even 20th century, almost 19th century. Okay, all of the things that we do in our school systems are are not relevant uh, in in our world as we know our world today. And so we have to make major changes. I, I mean, and they're not complicated. Consider the fact that the old school districts still group kids by grade level based on age. If you're five years old, you're in kindergarten. If you're six years old, you're in first grade. If you're seven, you're, you know, and, and up and down the line. When we've known for years uh, that all children of the same age do not learn at the same pace, yet that's how we continue to group them. Consider the, 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 the format of the school. You on the average have a teacher with 25 kids in the class. And those 25 children may all be the same age, but they're all over the place in terms of their ability to learn. Yet teachers will still get in front of the class and try to teach all 25 the same thing at the same time. That doesn't work. It never has, and it doesn't work today. So the move has, needs to be to ungraded, personalized learning where you're dealing with each child. And by the way, again, going back to the 21st century notion, we can do that today because we have the technology that allows teachers to be able to provide that kind of instruction. This past school year, as much as remote learning was a, a, a failure to the extent that school districts were not prepared to do that, uh, that the remote learning <clears throat> is not the best way uh, for children to, to be educated. But nevertheless, the remote learning showed that it can be a great asset uh, to in-person learning. And there are many districts that are going to continue doing it because that technology does allow for the personalization, the individualizing of learning for each and every student. When we talk about student uh, catching up these students, I cringe uh, when I hear politicians uh, say, well, what we need to do is to make sure that every child repeats the grade level that they missed. No, <laughs> that is an incredible waste of time. What we wanna do is to assess where each child is and then move that child forward from where they're at, not have them sit for an entire year listening to many of the things that they've already heard and might very well have, have mastered. So these are the whole uh, child experience is important. The teacher pipeline, 
you know, the, the education pipeline is a critical piece. Our education workforce, uh, our teachers have to be retrained. Uh, we have to get away from the one teacher, you know, we call the sage on the stage, the one teacher in the 25 as being the model uh, and developing a community of learning where a group of uh, a teacher assistant, uh, student teacher, teacher, master teacher, work as a team with a larger group of students, basically engineering and facilitating the learning process. We have to move away with telling kids what they have to learn and allowing kids to say, this is what I want to learn. This is what motivates my learning. And this is what I wanna take as I move forward and giving students a greater responsibility in, in the learning uh, process. And we have to do away with many of these rules and regulations that keep us doing what we've always done. Yeah, I have a, I have a good friend uh, uh, who's written a book on the future of work and what we do for kids, which is pretty fascinating. So my, my question for you when it comes to the overall vision for Learning 2025, what, what are the type of students, like what's the outcome? What's the end product of all of this work that you're trying to, to do and the vision you're casting? Now, changing the culture is important and being future driven. So for example, um, I think that everybody in every school district uh, mission will tell you, well, our mission is to get our kids to graduate high school and go to college and get a college degree, right? If I walked into a, a, a room full of parents and I would say, how many of you want your children to graduate high school and go to college and get a degree? Every parent will raise their hand. Well, Dustin, the reality is that less than 40%, 40%, less than 40% of our students wind up in college with a four-year degree. What happens to the other 60%? Well, the educational system today is not focusing on that 60%. So we've got a significant number of kids that go out of high school with no preparation, no degree, even the ones that go to college and get a four-year degree can't get a job because they haven't developed the skills and the training that they need. So one of the things that we wanna focus is in allowing, and we, we, we talk about children, giving children more of a voice, is, uh, is making children aware early in the process of the pathways to training and skills and successful jobs. That yes, those students that wanna go to a four-year college and get a degree, they will continue to, that number will still be less than 40, but now we're doing something for the 60% that are not. And that is to provide them with the opportunity early on to pathways that will lead to jobs skills that will lead to jobs, the kinds of opportunities that will allow these students to be productive and gainful members of our community. We have not done that. I agree. I think well, one, of, uh, one of my interviews, I, uh, with a gentleman named Michael Horn recently, I was confessing and he, he did the same, uh, that a lot of my education, I spent too much time in my middle school, high school, and even some in college, but I got away from a little bit of just trying to game the system of I need an A to get to the next step so I can do. I, there was no love of learning that was inspired. I mean, I had great teachers, but the, the system I felt like was very much like I got to learn something to pass something to get a, a credential. Is there anything baked in here uh, in your learning 2025 that is trying to help every learner kind of own their own learning and focus on the love of learning versus the just, I'm going to get a test score? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that, again, that goes with providing uh, students early on, uh, certainly no later than the freshman year in high school, 
uh, with making them aware of the opportunities, career awareness, uh, facilitating that process, uh, using assessments, you know, for students that would identify for those students what they might really be good at in terms of the, the skills they have, and then creating the, the, the roadways. But here's where the culture change comes in very often. And we've already started to do that, by the way. Think in terms of apprenticeship programs. Uh, for the last couple of years before the pandemic hit, uh, we already in our organization, uh, in a partnership with the Department of Labor, uh, had begun uh, doing a lot of work with school districts to create uh, uh, these uh, apprenticeship opportunities where the partnership between the private sector, <clears throat> community colleges, and the high schools in these districts allowed youngsters early on to identify a particular route or pathway or career that they were interested in. Uh, and through these apprenticeship programs, and this is just as an example, uh, they would work, spend 10 hours a week getting paid working for a particular company. They would be taking courses at the community college that were paid for by uh, the, uh, the business. And by the end, by the time they graduated high school, in some cases, some of these students were graduating high school with a community college degree and the high school diploma at the same time. Certification in a particular skill area, okay? The opportunity to continue with their studies if that was what they wanted to do or to immediately go into a, a paying job uh, with a corporation. That's a very different model uh, than the traditional school model, yet very effective. The culture change is very often uh, that the parents are the ones that say, no, I, you know, I want my kid to go to college and get a four-year degree. And of course, uh, we know that uh, if there were 10 parents in the room, in the room that raised their hand, uh, I could easily tell them that's wonderful, but only four of you are going to realize that, uh, that goal. So th there's a need to change our culture uh, away from this, you know, everybody is, you know, to go to college and get a degree which has never been a reality to, you know what, we need to create opportunities for students to be trained in skills. We see it, we hear it from the private sector, right? Who keep saying we have thousands of jobs and we can't fill them because we don't have the skilled uh, labor uh, to do it. Uh, so the jobs are there, the opportunities are there, but our system, our educational system is not providing the opportunity and the training that will allow those students to realize uh, a better life. So, so what's, what's, I mean, again, I know that you just are rolling this out as you kind of think about uh, accomplishing this vision, because I, I've read a few quotes on you and actually reached out to a few folks who have worked with you in the past. And I've not met one person who doesn't stand by the fact that you get stuff done. That's my edited version of it. Of you want to see execution. You're not just talk. You want to see accomplishment. And so what do you see right now as standing in your way of accomplishing this vision that you guys have cast? Well, we're excited about the fact that uh, we already have uh, over 100 school districts around the country that have signed on uh, to, to do the work. So because that's the point here, you know, you, you mentioned, yes, I, I, I like action. I just don't like talking about it. So we have over 100 school districts that have already signed up to move in the direction of doing these things that, that, that I'm talking about. I'm working with our, my uh, uh, fellow executive directors and all these other organizations to team up, uh, for example, in terms of the workforce. We need a more diverse workforce. Uh, we need more teachers in the classrooms that look like the kids that they're, they're teaching. That's not the case uh, today. 
So we're working with higher education and we're working with the schools of education and the deans of the schools of education with different models to, to bring that about and make that a reality. Uh, we're working with uh, uh, you know, school districts in terms of all of these various opportunities. The training of teachers, uh, it, it's, it's gonna be important to train teachers not to be the individual that sees themselves as getting in front of the class and lecturing, but as the individual that's gonna become a director of learning, the individual that's really gonna work with each child, assess where each child is at, and then develop a program for each child, a learning program that's different from everybody else in the class. And their job then is to monitor this whole process. Very different strategy. All of these things though, that are in that report, are being done somewhere in America. And those are the districts that we're looking at and identifying. And those are the districts that are gonna be working with and partnering with other districts that want to do the same thing. So all of these things that I'm talking about uh, from non-graded uh, education, personalized learning, uh, creating pathways for all of these students, the social emotional factors, these are all things that are already being done. They're real, they're being done, it's happening. Uh, and, and we wanna make sure that this spreads out throughout our school systems in America. So we change from the system that we have today, uh, which goes back to the 19th century. I mean, it was Horace Mann who created the grade level structure that we're still using in the 21st century to a world that provides all of our students with opportunities. College for sure, no question that any child that wants to go to college and get a degree, if you wanna be a doctor, a lawyer or an engineer, that's the, your pathway. But the reality is that that has never been the case. And we have kind of neglected uh, the larger portion of our students in terms of getting them ready uh, for what can be a better life. Well, that the way you just framed that really speaks to me because I, I look at, you know, you spend enough time in uh, urban areas in education, like to just say, yeah, college isn't for them. Like that may be true, but what I want is every kid to have the choice to mm -hmm. choose college or not, which has mm -hmm. isn't a real thing. But right. to your point, when you talk about we need to take care of, you know, if 60% if or if that number shrinks to 50% or whatever aren't choosing, we've got to do a really a much better job of helping them build for their own future, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And another important factor here that underlines all of this, again, is the issue of equity. Uh, that uh, right now there's uh, so much opposition to uh, equity. I mean, uh, again, when we look, when we, no child left behind, when we look at the children that are being left behind, who are those children? Those are the children that predominantly are, have been marginalized and not given the opportunities uh, that other children have had. And this is one of the things that we work with our superintendents to do. Uh, and uh, you would think uh, that this is something that uh, everybody would uh, jump on board and say, absolutely. Uh, yet today, you know, they're struggling with opposition even to do that. And what do I mean by that? Well, you know, we, we have our best educational programs in this country are exclusive, exclusive. And we're proud of that when they should be inclusive. Because what we're doing is that we're saying, these are our best programs, these are our greatest programs, but they're only good for these students and not necessarily for these other students. You can't participate in these programs. Uh, and, and that can't be uh, because these other youngsters that we are excluding from participating in these programs will never have the opportunity to succeed. 
to, to have the advantages that other have. And that's a reality. Uh, that exists in, in just about every school district. So we work our, uh, with our superintendents to look at the data, to look at what's going on. Uh, it's amazing. You know, I was the superintendent of schools in Fairfax County, Virginia, 10th largest school district in it's America. Like small little district in Northern Virginia. No one's heard of it. Keep going. 190,000 kids. But when I went into Fairfax <clears throat> and I, I, I looked at our, our population and all of our schools, we had a substantial number uh, of our students that were not performing well, that were failing, that were not getting the opportunities that uh, you know, so many of our other students were getting. And what I did there is that I, I created a system where I, that I identified all of those schools. I provided those schools because equity is different than equality. When you talk about equality, you say everybody gets the same thing. Well, everybody getting the same thing doesn't do it. Equity is about giving every child what that child needs that may be less or more than what other children are getting, okay? So we instituted a system of equity whereby identifying our lowest performing schools, I gave those schools more money, more teachers, more instructional time, better resources, and miraculously, within a period of two or three years, those schools were performing much higher than, than they ever had because we created that opportunities. Now, there were people in the community that yelled and screamed and say, well, whoa, why are you giving us schools more money? Why are they have more hours? Why are you doing all those things for those schools and not for mine? Well, because your kids are doing great <laughs> in McLean and Langley and all of the uh, sections of, of, of Fairfax County uh, that was middle class or higher. Uh, yet the communities that were in impoverished areas of the county were not. Yet when given the opportunities, when given the resources, they performed better. This is not rocket science. It's a fact. And this is the kind of uh, 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 solution uh, that we want to see implemented in, our, in all of our schools because it will, be, it will be better for society in general uh, when we have all of our individuals that are trained, skilled, able to work, effectively and, and earn a living. It'll erase many of the problems that our society is dealing with today. So as we wrap up, I, I always offer an opportunity for our guests to share a, a piece of advice that you have for folks. And right now, you know, we're at a place where the school year starting, as we've talked, there's a lot of uncertainty. Will it, will it close down? Will we go back to virtual? Who knows? Um, what advice do you have for educators, educational leaders, as well as educators who are listening on um, approaching this uncertainty this year? Well, what I've told our, our superintendents uh, is that, uh, and I, I refer to them as champions for children. And I say to them, uh, you know, your, your job and your mission first and foremost uh, is, is to do everything in your power that will ensure uh, the safety and welfare of your students and will ensure that all of your students get the kind of quality education that they deserve. And so you have to develop the plan and you have to develop the path that you feel will lead you in that direction. You're gonna meet opposition, there's no question about it. But your job is to be the champion for these kids because if you're not, nobody else will. So is it risky business? There's no question about it. Uh, you know, Don't be a martyr either. Uh, do the best you can to explain what you're doing and why you're doing, try to gain uh, as much support as you can, uh, possibly, uh, 
But in the final analysis, you, you cannot step back. Uh, you're seeing right now in America, for example, uh, in, in states where uh, governors have uh, issued edicts that prevent the district from wearing masks and all these superintendents standing up and saying, no, we're not going to do that. Our children are going to wear a mask. And, you know, because that is what will best ensure their safety and welfare. So I'm not going to uh, ignore that. I'm going to go ahead and do it. And we're proud of those superintendents that are doing that. It's not easy uh, in a world. But again, um, if you don't, uh, then, you know, what superintendent wants to have on their conscience that as a result of they're not doing the right thing, children in their community died as a result. Nobody wants that. I agree. So uh, last few questions, because we're trying to learn from everybody. Every leader, we believe, has some habits or disciplines that they uh, use in their lives to be more effective. What are What's a habit or a couple of habits or disciplines that you do on a daily basis or even a weekly basis that you think uh, are part of your success as a leader? First and, uh, and foremost, you have to take care of yourself. Uh, if you're not around, uh, if you're sick, if you're weak, uh, you're not going to be able to do what you want to do. Uh, so I work out uh, every day. Uh, for many years, I, I, I was a runner. I would do uh, four, six miles a day, 10 miles on weekends. Uh, I paid the price because as a result of that, I've had, had both hips replaced. <laughs> so now I can't run anymore, but I still work out. I still do an elliptical, bicycle, swimming, all of the things that I can do. Uh, and that allows me to be strong, that allows me to, to be healthy, <clears throat> and that allows me to, to do what I do. I work easily 14-hour days on a regular basis, and, and, and I can do that. So that's important. Well, equally important is surrounding yourself with people uh, that care about you, uh, people that you love, people that love you. That kind of, of support uh, allows you then, um, frees you. Uh, to be able to do the kind of things that you uh, that you can do, uh, it also uh, gives you the support uh, to take risks uh, when it's appropriate to take risks, to walk out on a limb when it's appropriate, because you know uh, that if you fall, uh, there are people there who who will catch you. Uh, I learned that from my parents, actually. You know, I I'm an immigrant. Uh, my parents were immigrants. Uh, I grew up on the west side of, of Manhattan. Uh, and I had parents that loved me unconditionally uh, and gave me that support. And, and it was wonderful for those of us that have had that, to have that feeling that, you know, no matter what happened, uh, mom and dad were, were always there for you. Uh, even as I was an adult, uh, mom and pop were always there uh, for you. I do that now with, with my family, with all of my kids and all of my grandkids, uh, provide them with that love and support. And as a result of that, uh, they're grown up uh, themselves to be successful, wonderful, loving individuals. So those are two for sure. You got to take care of yourself first and surround yourself with the kind of love and support that will allow you to succeed in whatever it is that you choose to do in life. Well, especially for education leaders, we just talked about folks that are taking punches on a daily basis. If you don't have mm -hmm. a strong network to validate you when you're upsetting a lot of other folks as you're trying to make the best decision to love and serve people, it becomes almost impossible, right? Correct. Um, all right, so uh, we also know that great leaders are generally readers. So what kind of reading habits do you have or what what books are some of your favorite books or what, what authors are some of your favorite authors? 
Well, I, I, I do a lot of, uh, uh, of uh, you know, technical reading, obviously, you know, in terms of uh, because of my job, a lot of the research, a lot of the things that I like to do. But, uh, but I also like to mix it uh, up so that I'm always reading uh, some form of, of non-factual but fiction. Uh, I'm reading David Brooks is one of my favorite authors, uh, for example. Uh, but uh, I also love to read action kind of things, you know, things that will take my mind uh, off uh, the work that, that I do, just uh, kind of entertainment. So I mix it. I mix the two. But most of my reading is it just technical uh, research, reports, all these things that I have to read. But if I had the opportunity to sit back quietly and, uh, and read a, 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 a novel, uh, I will do that uh, by any number of authors. What, what do you do to recharge? I, I had an interview, I don't know, a few weeks ago with Jeffrey Canada, who's someone I've looked up to for a long time. And he surprised me when he said for 25 years, he taught uh, Taekwondo class, I think twice a week. Um, and this is something you would never guess. And his whole point was like, getting ready, I just check out. I don't worry about all the other problems that we have our children's zone or anything else. I just go teach my class and I'm thinking about it while I'm there. And then even when I leave for the next hour or so, I'm fully immersed in that versus all the other things that could be happening. You know, I know you work out. Is there anything that you do to help? You said boating maybe uh, be one of the things that you do to help uh, unlock. <coughs> uh, well, you know, lately, one of the things that I've uh, discovered uh, is, you know, I have these ear pods that I, I just put in my ear yep. and, uh, you know, Spotify, those of you, if you're familiar with that music channel, and I just lie down with those earbuds on, and for a half hour, I will play Spanish guitar. I will play uh, love music from the 70s. I will play any of those nice and mellow uh, sounds. And I just sit there, and it's a form of meditation. And I, I think of nothing. I'm just listening to the music. And in a half hour, when I'm you know, done, I'm, I feel recharged. I'm, I'm ready to go. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's not meditation, uh, but for me, it's a great form of relaxation. That's awesome. Well, Dan, we've had you here for an hour. This has been an awesome conversation. Uh, I am inspired by the work you and your committee have done around learning 2025. I'm inspired as getting ready to talk to you, uh, finding out from a number of folks that again, all consistently said one thing is that you're about action and execution. So I assume your organization is as well. And so uh, it's an honor to be associated with you. And I wish you the best as you guys go fight for everyone uh, in your Learning 2025 plan. Well, thank you, Dustin. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to chat with you. And uh, uh, we are excited about our work. Uh, it, it, we're about action. It's going to happen. Yeah, well, I hope our paths cross again soon. Thanks for making time for us today. Thank you. Have a great day. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, uh, podcast on Apple or Spotify, and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential.